You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. My name is Kathy Biasse, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we'd like to welcome you to the show today. Today's show is being taped, so there is no opportunity for you to call in. You can uh, check us out on our social media sites. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the Health Hub RMC. If you'd like to email us, we're at thh at radiomaria.ca. And all of our broadcasts are flipped over into podcasts. So you can find them on iTunes and SoundCloud and any other podcast formats that uh, that you are familiar with. Alex takes about a week to do our shows and flip them over, but a lot of information, especially today. Um, we have a really a really information-packed show today. So a lot of information. Great that you don't have to write things down. You always have a resource to go back to. So do do check us out on, on the podcast. And I want to get right into the show. I want to introduce you to a bit of a new topic. It was for me. I've just started researching this. And the topic is postbiotics. Now, we've spoken a lot on this show about prebiotics and probiotics, but I wanted to introduce this other biotic to you called postbiotics. So let's just do a quick review. Prebiotics are types of fiber that feed our microbiome, and we've discussed this so many times in so many contexts, what our microbiome is. It's that uh, bacteria, virus, yeast milieu within our bodies that do so many positive things, but out of kilter can actually lead to certain health issues. So the prebiotics are the fibers that feed basically our microbiome. Probiotics are good bacteria that are found in certain foods, fermented foods like kefir, sauerkraut, kimchi, or supplements. And when we consume these, the these probiotics assist our residential bacteria in performing their functions. Now, the new biotic on the horizon is called postbiotics. And what postbiotics are basically are the byproducts of bacterial fermentation. Basically, they are the waste products. And it doesn't sound too sexy, but they perform many functions. And we're, you know, they're just, as with all research in this field of study, we're just starting to understand the value of the, these postbiotics. They can help with IBS conditions. They can help with leaky gut syndrome. They also help support the uh, probiotic or good bacteria in our system. And they help to, and in doing that, really, they reduce the uh, harmful pathogens. They are also important in um, the fight against diabetes and for pre-diabetics. Many, many things, skin problems, acne or eczema. Now, examples of postbiotics that that we've spoken about here are short-chain fatty acids, 
such as acetate, butyrate, and propionate. Many other ones that um, scientists are starting to study. And, and again, this is going to be something on the horizon that we're going to hear more and more about. Now, you can naturally increase your production of these postbiotics by including certain foods in your diet. Um, three of them I have here that, that are be a bit more common to you would be apple cider vinegar and spirulina and chlorella. Now, those are CLG, single-cell CLG, that very easy to consume. They're not a supplement. They are a food type, but very, um, very important in supporting this postbiotic formation. So a little tidbit for you. Go and research that and find out some more about it, as I will continue to do. Now, on to today's show. I read a very interesting paper a while back entitled Transforming Patient Healthcare and Well-Being Through Lighting. I found it fascinating. And though it, you know, it, it goes beyond my comfort zone, just the impetus of what was being discussed here is important, I think, for you to get an understanding of. The paper discussed a workshop that was put together to explore pathways to define and promote the adoption of lighting systems specifically for healthcare environments. And today we're very fortunate to have with us a member of that panel, Dr. Robert Karlasek, Jr. Dr. Karlasek, Jr. directs the Center for Lighting-Enabled Systems and Applications and is a professor of electrical, computer, and systems engineering at Rensselaer Polytech Institute. Before joining Rensselaer, he performed fundamental optoelectronics research and held technical management positions at AT AT&T Bell Labs, General Electric, W.L. Gore and Associates, as well as several high-tech startup companies. He obtained his Ph.D. in physical chemistry from the University of Pittsburgh and has over 45 published technical papers and 38 issued U.S. patents. After our break, we will be back to talk about lighting and its importance in healthcare.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are here with Dr. Karlasek. And again, this is a tape show, so no opportunity to call in. But feel free to email us if there's something that you would like us to pass on or have some questions for us. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about this topic. Well, thank you for joining us. And it's such it's an interesting, interesting topic I found, again, outside of my comfort zone. But, you know, when I started reading the paper, it made, you know, a lot of sense about why you would have this working group together. Maybe that's where we should start off. Why was this workshop that you were included in put together? Well, a lot of people may not realize it, but probably everybody's heard of LED lighting, and some people call this solid-state lighting, and it's become popular because it can be very energy efficient. Now, with LED lighting, you have the opportunity to do new things with light that you could never do before. Uh, and in particular, uh, you can adjust the spectrum, uh, and you can start talking about having lighting which is much more natural, kind of like sunlight. Uh, which changes throughout the day and helps regulate our circadian rhythms. And circadian rhythms are core to the body clock that helps our body uh, regulate its own internal operations. So with LED lighting, we have to be concerned about spectrum, the wavelengths of light that make up what we call white light. And because these wavelengths are going to be different for LED lighting, than they are with conventional lighting like incandescent bulbs or fluorescence. Many people are starting to experiment with LED lighting, and in particular, the impact of blue light in LED lighting and its impact on human circadian rhythm. So that is the big reason we pulled together this workshop. We wanted to combine lighting designers, healthcare providers, and technologists doing research on light and circadian regulation. Uh, together for a session to make everybody understand and initiate a dialogue across different domains so that people would be aware of what's happening and what's coming in the healthcare profession. Was part of the impetus because of misinformation out there? It's not so much because of misinformation, although there's a lot of that going on in the lighting community today. Um, It's mostly because of new discoveries, both in how human circadian rhythms are regulated and in terms of the possibility of uh, adjusting that regulation or in some cases uh, interfering with that regulation because of how solid-state lighting works. And because the spectral content, the wavelengths of light that are used to make up white light are different for LED lighting, people have become concerned that LED lighting may actually adversely impact uh, human circadian regulation. Some of this goes back to the fact that uh, about 20 years ago now, researchers doing research on human circadian function realized that there are cells in the human retina that are not specifically part of the visual pathway, uh, but are part of a circadian regulation pathway that respond especially strongly to blue light. And they respond in a way that when there's a lot of blue light around, like you would have on a bright sunlit day with a bright blue sky, uh, you suppress the formation of melatonin. And this is normal. It goes on in a lot of other mammals. And in people, 
that melatonin is suppressed until under an ordinary uh, daylighting scenario, the sun sets, uh, there's almost no blue light or dark light or perhaps only candlelight or firelight. The blue spectrum now is essentially gone and the body starts producing melatonin. This melatonin is gradually produced within the body. It peaks uh, overnight and then gradually starts to go down. And this melatonin peak is responsible for essentially setting the timekeeper within the body that regulates circadian regulation of uh, your cardiovascular system, your digestive system, other systems in the body that all have their own circadian clocks. When, when we now, talk about sunlight, can I just back up a bit so that, you know, just for, for those of us who don't really have a grasp of it. So sunlight is made up of different wavelengths. Is that correct or is it all blue light? No, sunlight is made up of all different wavelengths. And we know this because uh, in a rainstorm, we happen to see a rainbow. That rainbow is taking the wavelengths of light from the sun and dispersing them into their different colors and projecting that dispersion against the clouds. So you see the colors that are included in sunlight. Like we did in grade 12, the prism, separating light into its pieces. Yes, Roy G. Biv. Uh, <laughs> is the expression with red, orange, yellow, uh, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Um, those are the colors that are in sunlight. And sunlight has a particular, uh, what we call spectral power distribution, intensity among all those different colors that is part of our natural environment. And many people who wonder about the impact of lighting, artificial lighting on people, think that daylight uh, is the gold standard. But of course, daylight and the the wavelengths of light in daylight change throughout the day, uh, as we know just from watching the sunlight as we go from sunrise to sunset, and uh, in the middle of the day, a high blue content from a blue sky, or even on a cloudy day, uh, a fair amount of different kinds of wavelengths of light coming. But this is all part of the nature's approach to helping humans regulate their circadian functions. Okay, now the LED light, we'll get back to, I don't want to, to cut you off because it's fascinating, but just to, to put things in perspective, is LED light always blue light? No, LEDs are being used today to make white light, uh, and they can do it because blue LEDs are very efficient, and then you can take a blue LED and use uh, a color-converting material called phosphor, and mix it with the blue LED light to generate what humans perceive as white light. White light is always what we call polychromatic, many colors. Um, An incandescent bulb, for example, produces a spectral distribution which is a lot like sunlight, and maybe part of the reason why a lot of people like incandescent light, because its spectral power distribution, as we call it, is a lot like sunlight. Um, and it, but it doesn't vary throughout the day. It has a fixed uh, color content based on the temperature of the filament in the bulb. But when you have a blue LED powering the phosphor to create white light, that blend of colors can be adjusted with the wavelength of the blue LED and the phosphors uh, to create a new spectral power distribution that we perceive as white. And it can be very high quality white. It can be cool white. 
and warm white, uh, which are terms that some of your listeners are probably familiar with. And really very high quality lighting can now be made with light emitting diodes. But there's concern that in some lighting made with LEDs, there's too much blue light. And there is concern that this can have an impact on the human circadian function, especially if you get too much of that blue light at night. So why, why right now is this such a huge topic that um, you feel is so important to discuss? Because the joint discovery of the impact of especially blue lighting on human circadian regulation and the drive to come up with very energy efficient lighting using LEDs is creating this juxtaposition of concerns about circadian rhythm and whether or not we can capitalize on the energy benefits of LED lighting. And just to put things in perspective, um, an LED light bulb uh, is roughly 10 times more energy efficient than an incandescent light bulb. So there are tremendous incentives and energy savings to replace conventional lighting, even in fluorescence, uh, with LED lighting systems. And so this is really driving many people to replace all of their lights with LED lighting. Now comes the question of, is this really healthy lighting? And is it impacting our circadian rhythm or is it impacting other aspects of how we as humans behave under certain kinds of illumination with regard to impact on how we learn, how alert we are, and of course, circadian function and ability to sleep. So I'm just trying to, trying to grasp all of this. If our circadian rhythm is, is off kilter, how is that affecting us health-wise? Well, that's a really good question, and, um, and experts don't really necessarily agree on this, but it is kind of an analogy that I like to use is that our circadian rhythm is kind of like uh, timing in an automobile. If the timing is right, the automobile, the car runs efficiently and it doesn't wear out very quickly, but the timing is off, it's not efficient, parts may break earlier. The analogy is important because people have noticed that the sleep disorders and in particular um, shift work tends to be associated with certain kinds of maladies. And for a long time, people have wondered whether or not the shift work uh, and disrupting the circadian rhythms were responsible for uh, issues with cardiovascular problems, certain kinds of cancer, uh, obesity, type 2 diabetes. And over the last uh, roughly 10 to 20 years, people have started to look at correlations uh, between shift work and these problems. And what shift work basically was a signal for was too much light at night. And moving the circadian rhythms around um, in a way that doesn't allow them to be well-timed. Um, think of it as chronically being jet-lagged as you move from daytime work to nighttime work and having your circadian rhythm constantly trying to shift to keep your body clock running properly. And then there became concerns that perhaps this was responsible for some of these uh, disease vectors um, exacerbating them in some way. 
Um, so a lot of research has been done, some of it very, very fundamental research on how melatonin uh, plays a role, for example, in prostate cancer and breast cancer, uh, and whether or not melatonin and timing plays a role in um, insulin resistance, which is a precursor for uh, type 2 diabetes. And so all of this is ongoing research. The question is, and the question that is still not answered is, how much is light responsible for some of these kinds of issues? And is the right or wrong kind of lighting partly responsible for what's going on with what people flag as increases in cancer or cardiovascular disease or diabetes or obesity? Um, and people in the lighting industry are very excited about this because now they have a chance to sell lighting which is going to be healthy but very little data really has closed the loop on how well we understand the link between light, circadian rhythm, and control of that circadian rhythm, and the disease vectors that the, some of the research and some of the lighting people are saying we can impact with lighting control. So you can take a shift worker, so theoretically, um, down the road when research is in place, are you suggesting that perhaps we can take somebody who is working during the night, change the setting of their lifestyle lighting, and maintain their circadian rhythm? Is that sort of the path that research and your group is going down? There is some research that suggests that that might be possible and that we can come up with very good daytime spectrum that allows us to work efficiently. Um, and a very good nighttime spectrum that decouples our need to sleep from melatonin uh, and basically allow people to stay on a, a first shift worker circadian regulation as if we were in daylight during the day and dark at night, um, but sleep whenever they wanted to. So that's very controversial. Uh, several research don't researchers don't believe that that's really possible. Um, but there's a small amount of data that's starting to be developed that suggests this could be really possible. So this could be very, very good for people that do routinely shift between daytime and nighttime shift work, and their body clock can be aligned all the time, um, but they can pretty much work and sleep whenever they need to. That would be a very interesting finding. Yeah, it uh, would other be. People are saying that, other people are saying that, well, so long as you get enough blue light in the daytime, and you get dark enough, dim, low blue light content at night, your circadian rhythms will be fine. But it's those people so, that are missing the daylight in sleep and working at night that this can be extremely applicable to if the research carries us in that direction. So really the challenge now is for us to build hardcore evidence mm -hmm. based on human factor studies that allow us to make definitive claims with regard to the quality of light and the light spectrum and the timing of that light spectrum and the ability to impact people's health and well-being. And this is a very, very big area of research now, in part because for the first time we can do this with LEDs because we can control the spectrum uh, and we can control the timing of the spectrum with control systems that would control the lighting. and we have this newfound understanding of how spectrum can impact human circadian regulation. So this is a, it's a fascinating area. 
and everybody is very interested in seeing how they can adopt light to be able to impact our our behavior as well as our health. And so a lot of research going on. It is fascinating. And, you know, it really pulls in what we're talking about today really pulls in so many aspects of healthcare. So you've got, you know, your end where we're dealing with the lighting, but, you know, also so closely integrated in this topic are health concerns, our lifestyle topics. When we get back from our break, we're going to delve a little bit deeper into this subject and then carry on to see where applications may be made, maybe in elder care homes and so forth. So stay tuned with us. We'll be right back. I look back over my life thank you. and all the times you brought me through. Thank you. I just want to say, Father, thank you. When I was lonely uh. and needed someone to hold me, um, you were beside me uh. when my nights got cold and lonely. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, y'all. 
for making a way out of no way, Lord. I for my health and strength, Lord. I for helping me to pay the rent, I want to. For my wife and kids, Lord. I Yo, for everything you did, I want to. What y'all laughing at? Y'all better sing. You are listening to The Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Again, the show is being taped, so no opportunity to call in. We are talking with Dr. Robert Karlasek. It's a fascinating topic of lighting. And now we're going to sort of take all that, that information that he provided first half and, and get down to maybe some, some applications that would be familiar to you to sort of bring this full picture together about why this topic is so important. Now, at break, Dr. Karlasek, you were talking about um, spectrum lighting in, in schools, so maybe we can start there. Well, people have been researching, mostly lighting companies have been doing a little bit of research on the impact of spectral tuning uh, in schools. Um, you know, brighter, blue-rich content for um, attention-intensive operations like taking tests and reading, um, more relaxing, warmer white lighting for when there's social dialogue or interactions between the teacher and students of a different kind. And um, lighting companies have been looking at this for some time now, and they do find there's a correlation between spectral tuning and student performance, improved test scores, uh, in some cases reduced incidences of um, restlessness in students with different kinds of lighting spectrum. And uh, this has kind of been done in a series of small case studies um, in Europe and in the United States. And so it was a very exciting area. And all of this was usually done with cool white, warm white fluorescence. And we all know what fluorescent lighting is. We know that sometimes they're more blue and sometimes they're a little bit more warm. So very tantalizing studies done with that. We can do much more now with LED lighting in terms of continuous tuning or uh, cool white, warm white tuning. And so more people are looking at installing uh, color tunable lighting in classrooms and data are starting to come out that the students like it, the teachers like it, um, but we don't have a lot yet in terms of really quantified data on just what the overall impacts can be. But it's very exciting. Um, 
and the studies suggest that more and more schools uh, will be going over to color tunable lighting to be able to help improve student performance in the classroom. That's very interesting. I'm going to jump in with a question here, and and excuse me if it's not one of the top-shelf questions, but we're talking about blue light a lot, and that's the color of, that's what gives us the alertness, the spectrum of light that gives us the alertness. What about red light and green light spectrum? Are are they involved with our body regulation at all? Um, Very interesting. Uh, Again, sources of controversial research. Um, actually, when we take a look at just the circadian rhythm regulation by itself, uh, blue light is most efficacious, but it's a question of intensity and, and timing. Uh, green light and red light can also impact human circadian performance, um, but really the one that is most effective is blue light. But the thing that's really interesting here is that, you know, when you go to make white light, you really only need two colors of light to make white, make what humans call white. And that is blue light and yellow light. You can take other complementary colors and mix them to get white. But blue light and yellow light were the foundation for the very first light emitting diodes that came out. And when you have those two colors of light, you can make white. Of course, we all know that we can make white light with red, green, and blue. That's how our television sets and displays work. Um, And as you add more colors, you can have a lot more flexibility. Now, when you take a look at this kind of light, you also have to worry about things like color rendering. Does this light allow me to see colors that are are accurate and vivid? Uh, Do people look healthy or do people look not so healthy under certain kinds of lighting? Um, These are all factors that have to be controlled when we talk about putting the right kind of spectrum in the lights. Um, I I like to use an example of sorting socks. If you have an incandescent light bulb in your laundry room and you're sorting blue and black socks, you can't tell the difference between blue and black because there's not enough red light to correctly render the colors. Um, Similarly, when we actually have high-quality lighting systems, we worry about the entire visual experience. Can I properly look at, for example, skin tone? Can I really render colors appropriately? Is the the lighting of the objects in my space, is it natural? These are all things that lighting designers worry about. And now with LEDs on the scene and a higher concentration of blue light with a different kind of spectral distribution than people are ordinarily used to, the question is, how do I deliver all of these quality factors of lighting color rendering, um, the ability to have natural object appearance, the right intensity, and now the ability to also possibly have an impact either for good or for bad on human circadian performance. So these are all the things that are making this field extremely exciting. If you're a lighting designer and a researcher, possibly very confusing for a consumer because we really don't know what the answers are yet. And in the lighting design community, they're all really taking a look at how do we get new standards for lighting in healthcare, in schools, in elder care facilities? Tell us what to buy so we can install it. And some people say that the research is there, just buy our product. Some people are saying the research is not there, please wait a little while. And these are some of the battles that are going on and part of the reason why we had our workshop. Are, are you starting to 
unfold different lighting aspects. You know, I'm thinking within the healthcare field, we talk about proper lighting for operation rooms in the surgical context. Are you starting to examine, you know, I, you know, when it comes to surgery, you know, some surgeries are shorter, some surgeries are longer. So balancing how well surgeons can see uh, the light that keeps them alert and then talking about the aspect that you brought in is truly seeing what you need to see. Are you starting to see more of your your technology coming into the health field in that regard? And, and to take it a step further, you know, when people are recovering from surgery, should they recover under certain lighting conditions? With regard to lighting in surgical suites, the, the focus has primarily been, so far as I know, on visual acuity so that you can actually adjust the color of the lighting for certain kinds of surgical procedures so that uh, certain features that require uh, careful attention can stand out more clearly uh, as opposed to getting washed out because there's too much red light or not enough blue light. Um, so there's been a lot of focus there. Um, with regard to lighting that is comfortable for physicians uh, and for staff in the surgical suite, um, I'm not really familiar that a lot of work has been done there. It's mostly visual acuity, which has been the focus of color tunable lighting uh, in the surgical suite. I am not aware of any studies that pertain to uh, the impact of color tunable lighting or spectral control in the recovery suite, where, where people are really starting to take a look at the impact uh, of the ability to tune lighting spectrum has been in some elder care facilities uh, and in small test cases in hospitals. Uh, in elder care facilities, people have been focusing on trying to move back to daylight and making sure people get enough light during the daytime and having the right kind of light at night, which is more reflective of uh, the ability to get people to relax and calm down and um, just be more at ease. Um, and a lot of the studies that are kind of, kind of coming out now are, are very, very limited in terms of the number of cases of, they've studied. It goes more like we put in color-tunable lighting and everybody loved it. We are starting to collect data on reduction of falls in elder care facilities, um, the reduction of agitation uh, in elder uh, patients at night uh, when sundowner syndrome is a, a problem. And we're just in the process of starting to collect this data and looking at its statistical significance. Now, what do you mean by sundowner syndrome? Um, it's a situation where uh, people who are elderly sometime uh, in the starting phases of uh, dementia or Alzheimer's get very, very agitated when the sun goes down. And I don't understand all the causes of it. Uh, I've seen it firsthand uh, in some of my elderly relatives, but it's something that uh, they're starting to see an association with light spectrum. And again, it's, it's, it's really managing light spectrum throughout the day. Enough bright light during the day, keeping people energized and alert, and then the right kind of light at night. Fascinating. And this is where you see the, the, the most um, application of what you're doing now is more in the elder care as opposed to in, in hospital settings? No, people are starting to take a look in hospital settings as well. 
Um, there are epidemiological studies that suggest that the amount of daylight that a hospital room gets, for example, a, a south-facing window or an east or west-facing window versus a north-facing window in the northern hemisphere, tends to be related to mortality. Um, people haven't really understood why that is, but the assumption has been that light quality is a big factor in how people feel, how they understand the assessment of time. In the cases of ICU, uh, loss of time registration associated with something called um, ICU psychosis uh, or these kinds of problems. Um, so people are very interested in taking a look at whether or not with LED lighting and spectral control, we can help to moderate some of these situations. Well, it only makes sense that, you know, I've been in a hospital setting and, you know, the doors are opening and closing and the noise and all hours of the night and it's hard to get a good night's sleep. Uh, that alone can impact healing and, and getting, you know, achieving well-being. But again, back to regulating the circadian rhythm within the hospital setting, I would think would have a huge impact. Well, that's one of the things that came that we focused on in, in our workshop and the lighting designers and, and the experts who are primarily neurologists uh, and uh, biologists looking at the fundamental aspects of light and circadian function uh, felt that we would actually need to have two different kinds of lighting systems, one for staff who need to remain alert whenever they are working and one for patients, and then we should really take a look at how we uh, design the right kind of control systems that allow um, nurses to be able to see what they are doing when they need to minister to a patient at night uh, and not necessarily have to either carry a flashlight or turn the lights full on. Um, these are all about control systems and spectral control of the lighting, yet still be able to tune the lighting for what they need to do when they're at station. No, so no, no are, sorry, go ahead. Continue with your thoughts. Sorry. I was just going to say, these are, these are the kinds of discussions that are starting to happen now. So people listening to this show, I, I would think one of the questions is, is well, then, you know, in, a day, in, our, in our normal lives, what is healthy lighting? You know, what is healthy lighting in our setting? Can you explain what that would be? Well, a lot of lighting designers will tell you, get as much daylight as you possibly can. It is still the gold standard for human health and well-being and mood and circadian rhythm management. Um, a lot of us work in offices. Some of our offices don't have windows. So then it's a question of getting enough bright light with high enough blue content during the day, particularly in the morning, uh, to be able to uh, set uh, your body clock. And this is important because it also uh, helps, you, helps you tolerate more blue light at night. I'll get to that in a second. So good, bright, blue-rich light during the daytime, and then low blue light at night and dimmer light at night. Now, the worst of all worlds kinds of happens when you have or you work in an office where you're in relatively dim light all day, and then you go home at night, now your body is very susceptible to blue light. Uh, so if you're looking at your iPad or your, your phone or working on a computer monitor, this tends to have a bigger impact on circadian disruption. The experts tell me that if you get enough bright light with blue content during the day, then 
the dim light requirements at night aren't as severe and your body is able to tolerate some light at night and still have good circadian regulation. Um, defining all of this still needs to be subject to more testing and standards development. But, you know, one wild card is, especially for young people, are those that spend all of their night waking up to look at their phone to see if they got any text messages. And this is known to impact circadian regulation. And so this is a wild card that we'll all need to worry about with regard to how we handle our personal information devices. In fact, there are programs that are written to operate on iPhones or Android phones or computer monitors, programs like F.Lux that change the color temperature of the monitor or the display uh, from daytime to nighttime to try to minimize that effect. Now, uh, research is being done to see if those programs really work. Some people say they do. Some people say they don't. So you, we're still in kind of the wild, wild west of discovery phase on exactly how we manage light with regard to maximizing our health and well-being. That's a very important piece of information. I did not know. So the, the, the light coming from our computers, and I, excuse me if I seem naive on this topic, again, it's outside of my, my area, but so the light coming from our screens, our computers, our TV is blue light? Oh, it's, it's, it's all colors of light. Um, but there will be a blue component. It's just that it's direct bright light in some cases going directly into our eyes. How long do you need to, if I'm telling someone that they need to shut down their, their TV, their computers, how long does it take our brain to adjust to not having blue light in Is it a buildup that, that you're talking about or, or can we get back regulated if we shut our computers down half an hour before bedtime or the lights go down? Is there a number on that? Um, I think that some people will be able to give you some numbers on that. I've heard different numbers. I'm not really an expert on the exact nature of light dose and timing. There are people that are doing research on that. Um, so I would hesitate to put a number on it, but this has been published in the literature. But certainly, um, well, I have, a, uh, I have a book that my wife gave me that I have in front of me right now called Goodnight iPad. Um, it's a parody, but it's and the author is Android. Oh. Um, but uh, it's recognizing the fact that um, too much light at night and too much intellectual stimulation from what we're looking at uh, can really um, have an impact on our ability to sleep and to regulate our circadian rhythms. Okay. Now, so, we're, we're, um, sorry, go ahead, finish off. No, I was just going to say that um, these areas... Uh, there are recommendations that are out there uh, to start shutting down computers, you know, an hour to several hours before you really need to go to sleep so your body can dark adapt and really start to uh, allow you to generate melatonin. But even short pulses of light in the night can interrupt circadian rhythm. And so it's a complex area. It and is. research is being done to take a look at just what kind of light disturbances in the middle of the night can, can really impact your circadian function by impacting the production of melatonin. Um, and, and one last thing I should mention just very quickly with regard to melatonin, some people who travel a lot uh, and other people who are sensitive to sleep problems um, sometimes think that melatonin is a sleep hormone and that you can take it to help to get to sleep or regulate jet lag. Um, 
the recommendation of the experts that I'm aware of suggests that that's not necessarily the best way to go. Um, the level at which the body produces melatonin is not really sufficient to induce sleep. It is really a timekeeper. And it's also involved in uh, regulations of certain kinds of tumors, like um, certain kinds of breast cancer and prostate cancer. Melatonin is actually involved in the, um, the carcinogenesis of the tumor. So these are all things that are very active areas of research, but melatonin by itself is mostly a timekeeper. That's, that's interesting. So it, it starts a cascade of things as opposed to being mm-hmm. a control. Okay, good to know. I think, I think you know, what some questions that might pop up to, to the naive of us listening to this is, are there products now on the market that are backed by research today that we can invest in to aid us in proper circadian management, proper sleep, or are we there yet? And I think as we, you know, push to the end of our hour, this is probably a great place to sort of overlay what we can and can trust can and cannot trust out in the market before we go and start grabbing different lights and setting ourselves up for for something that's just a money waste um, excellent question uh, several companies now are starting to advertise what they call healthy light products uh, these are typically lights that tune throughout the day or can be adjusted in terms of their color um, most of them are marketed under the theory that if I make my bulb or my tube or my lighting system look like daylight uh, and kind of track sunrise to sunset, then it must, by definition, be healthy. Um, that's not necessarily the case, and a lot of these products don't have actual clinical data behind them because developing the data to support those claims is very time consuming. You have to work with people. It requires complex medical studies and they're very, very expensive. So the operating assumption for many lighting companies right now is that if I replicate the daylight spectrum and my bulb looks like sunlight, it's got to be good. And so people can like it. Uh, You can buy these bulbs and use them. I really doubt that you'll be doing any damage. Um, But there's no data behind what I would call a set lighting specification for healthy lighting. This is still in the research phase. Um, Others will tell you that we already know enough that just do high blue light in the daytime, low blue light at night, you're as good as gold, and you don't really need to worry about anything else. Um, so there's even disagreement within the experts in this community. But from product standpoint, um, I don't think anybody really has product that has a strong clinical data backing behind it yet. They are working on it. Lending companies are investing money in trying to drive that kind of understanding. But uh, we're still learning a lot. We're still That's not there That's kind yet. of my perspective. And where would we go to keep up on the research as, as we... Uh as we end the show, let's 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 go there because this is going to drive a lot of people to to wonder. So, where can we go to keep up? Can we can we follow some of the work you're doing? Where do we go to find out what's 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 true and what's not? Um, it depends upon the level of, of technical data you want to try to digest. Um, organizations that have been around for a long time that deal with lighting are addressing this. 
uh, one research organization is the uh, the Illumination Engineering Society. Uh, in fact, uh, they write uh, a lot of standards for lighting design, lighting design for street lighting, for home lighting, for industrial lighting. Uh, how much light should you have? What should the spectrum be? What are the requirements? Um, they have a lighting and health subcommittee, which is made up of some of the world's leading experts that are actively developing, uh, you know, research ideas and formulating new standards for what is healthy lighting. So that's the Illumination Engineering Society or the IES. Um, they're looking at these specifications. You can learn a lot from certain architectural design firms that focus on hospital lighting or elder care lighting. Some of them are driving their own research and putting different kinds of lighting systems into their uh, new installations to do some of their own fundamental work. Um, and then there are lighting research centers that are relatively well-known. Here at Rensselaer, uh, we have another lighting research center. It's actually called the Lighting Research Center. And they do work on light spectrum and human health and well-being. And so they publish findings um, periodically. So you can look at the Light Research Center at Rensselaer. So lots of you places can, we, can, we can go and, and, and investigate and keep on top of this stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, you have to learn some of the technology. If you just Google circadian lighting, you'll get a lot of hits and you'll get a lot of ads for healthy lighting. But um, there are a lot of places you can start to look at to uh, try to take a look at how you can manage your own light dose. Uh, enough light during the day with a good enough high blue content, so it's kind of like daylight at the right intensity, and then trying to stay away from computer monitors and smartphones and iPads at night uh, so that you don't disrupt your circadian rhythm regulation. Perfect. It's been a fascinating show. Thank you so much. It really has been a launch pad for people to start investigating. Thank you so much for your time, and we welcome you to join us next week on The Health Hub. have been listening to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.